from PRX. Stew. Stew. D. D. E. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you mean, are. No, no. You've I'm got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, the wonderful Denise Goff. Physically, it is. It's a marathon athletic feat, and one I am so proud of my body for giving me eight times a week. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. During the decade or so after completing her theater degree in London, Denise Goff had acted in lots of plays, appeared on plenty of TV shows, been in a few movies, but she was still waiting for the big break. Babysitting and waiting tables and who knows what else barely paid the bills. She was about to turn 35 and was thinking about quitting show business. Then in 2015, she got the proverbial role of a lifetime, starring in a new play called People, Places and Things at Britain's National Theatre, playing an actress who is an addict in recovery. Do you lie to protect yourself or your addiction? It's not lying. It's admitting there's no truth to begin with. Have you read Foucault? Not lately. Or Derrida, Baudrillard, Bart? When did you start using, Emma? I can't base my survival on slogans and abstractions and vagueness. I'm not someone who can do Pilates on a beach and mistake relaxation for spirituality. That performance won her rave reviews and big awards, including the big one in UK theatre, The Olivier. People, Places and Things came to New York late last year for a brief run at the St. Anne's Warehouse Theater, where I was lucky enough to see a performance. And she stayed on in New York for an imminent Broadway revival of the epic Angels in America, which, like People, Places and Things, she first starred in in London. Denise Goff, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you very much. Uh, It's not so common, it seems to me. That somebody works, you know, you were working, you got jobs for almost a dozen years. And then suddenly, all at once, with this one role, like, whoa, she's so amazing. But presumably you were good at 29. I have always been great. <laughs> but, but, but now, 30 months now into Now I'm huge. <laughs> exactly. You are. Uh, but when I saw you play this character, Emma, in People, Places, and Things, uh, who had uh, checked herself into rehab and then, as addicts do, fallen off the wagon more than once, um, I was struck by how physically demanding that role seemed. Just uh, relapses and withdrawal, the way you played them, looked like, my God, how is she doing that again and again and again? Yeah. Physically, it is. It's a huge, it's a marathon athletic feat. And one I'm so proud of my body for for giving me eight times a week. And presumably you had been drunk in your life. So you knew what that was like. Oh my God, haven't we all? Yeah, yeah, of course. So I know what all of that is like, you know. So, um, but also the key to, to all of that stuff, to all of that acting is to try to be sober. Yeah. When playing drunk, the key to it actually, the secret is actually try to be sober. Or, or or like a drunk person pretending to be sober. Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. So you're trying to get your body to do stuff that it's not. Well, and when it's done do. badly, and again, you did it beautifully, it, when it's done badly, it's it's over the top. Yeah, that sort of crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah right? absolutely, absolutely, because we don't actually do that. We right. don't. It's the really funny thing. What we do to ourselves 
to get drunk and yeah. then we try to pretend to be sober. You kind yes. of. Uh, I read that you said that you had seen plenty of actors or actresses playing as drunks and they were terribly self-indulgent. What do you mean? How did that self-indulgence manifest itself? Well, I think there is, there can be a tendency for actors to get sort of seduced by their own performances. And so things go inward. And so you watch a technically very gifted performer, but they're not giving you the performance. They've forgotten that actually the audience are the final, you know, you're in a theater. I just get a bit kind of icked out when actors whisper, you know, and you think, I can't hear you. Um, it's like my performance is so delicate, I can't even let you hear it. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's pointless. Um, but I, on stage, I can find that, especially when it's a big stonking lead role, um, you forget that even if it's a lead role, you're still part of an ensemble and you have to go outward with what you're trying to do. You're trying to tell a story to an audience and you you need the other people on stage to help you to do that. But mm-hmm. uh, the best performers for me are the ones that don't make it about themselves. Uh-huh. You know. Um, so now this revival of Tony Kushner's uh, yeah. Angels in America, which is, you know, fair to say the greatest American play of the last quarter century. It really is, yeah. About to open on Broadway. It's set in, in New York, uh, the height of the AIDS crisis, Um so for listeners who don't recall every detail of it or maybe didn't see the HBO adaptation, describe your character, Harper Pitt, so, and how she relates to the story. So I play Harper Pitt, who's married to Joe Pitt. Um, she's an agoraphobic uh, Mormon with a mild Valium addiction. Mild? Um, mild Valium addiction. Really? Yeah, yeah, that's what it says. And, huh. and Tony and I have talked about it, that you know she should never be defined as being an addict because that's not the truth huh. of Harper. Huh. It's a much more politically functional role than that. Uh, so she's married to Joe Pitt, who is gay, but either doesn't know it or is battling with it. Um, and... Uh, for me, Harper sort of represents in this play the function of women in society and how under the cosh of fundamental kind of religion and what is expected of us and what was expected of us. Um, and a woman who ignored her instinct. She knew going into the marriage that he was gay and she married him anyway because she thought something would change. And so she spends her life terrified of the truth and yet seeking the truth so that she can be free. That's a really convoluted, it's way simpler than that when you see it. (laughs) That was well well said. (laughs) Now, um, maybe because she's described as a Valium user and people take a different reading of that, she has been played as sort of stoned out and passive. That's not going to be the case with me. So you're doing it in a punchier, sassier way. Well, in London, she was very, very angry. And that was for that production. But I now have a new husband. You know, Lee Pace is playing uh, Joe Pitt in this production. And so I've been working with a new actor. And so when you work with a new person, uh, you react differently. And so I'm realizing this time around with Harper, she is devastated by her love for this man or by her trying to fit into what her Mormon society has told her she has to fit into. Um, And so she's very vulnerable, for sure. But I always think it's the least interesting choice for me to come through a character through the drug, you know, 
there's somebody before the drugs too. Um, and so I'm really pleased to have had the conversation with Tony about the fact that it's the pills are just sort of an extra. Uh-huh. What Harper really is, is, is a seer. She travels in her hallucinations. She has a friendship that forms with Pryor, who is the character who's dying of AIDS, and they meet in their dreams. As you rehearse this uh, on Broadway, here in New York City, this extremely New York play. Yeah. Is it weird to have brought this play from London to New York? Oh, my God. If we hadn't brought it here, I would have been ashamed of us. Truly, we had such a success with it in London. And for a bunch of British and Irish actors to have taken the success of this American giant of a play and then said, nah, we're not going to do it. Um, But also at this specific time um, with that man in the White House, as an artist, as an actress, if I don't do Angels in America on Broadway, then what am I doing? Like, truly, you get a few chances in your artistic life to do things. For me, people, places and things, and now this, I mean, it's an abundance of riches that I'm experiencing. If I was to only do these two plays, you know, that's a pretty major achievement in a career. Like, to be able to be political in a way. Um you mentioned earlier about how you play uh, your character Emma in People, Places, and Things as a as a as somebody who's drunk, but tr- trying to appear sober and straight. Um, are there other pieces of of instruction that you got as a st- acting student or or later that have stuck with? Like, always do X this way. I mean, are there specific tradecraft bits that that really stuck? It's interesting because people always want to know your process. And how you do certain things. And if I'm really honest, I don't have any of that. I don't believe in staying in character. I don't believe in having other people call me my character's name. I don't need any of that. To me, that just, like, I would be so embarrassed if I went, (laughs) I'd probably be fired if I went to a set and I was told I had to call an actor by their character name because it's just so silly to me. Um, All of that method stuff just I did a play with Sinead Cusack uh, who's wonderful and uh, her husband Jeremy Irons came to see the show and he said to me afterwards he said seamless I couldn't see the work and I thought that's the best thing you could say I don't want to see your working it's like people who spit a lot when they're on stage like (laughs) wipe your mouth or when they're crying and there's snot everywhere and you think wipe your nose like you wouldn't do that in real life you would wipe your nose right yeah so what if next year you have some gigantic breakout uh you know Meryl Streep in uh Sophie's Choice kind of role whoa uh Denise you can be a movie star would you do that yeah I mean ideally the thing is to straddle both right I don't mind where the work comes from as long as it's really good work Mm -hmm. And also, this is why I have like five million agents now, because they can all advise me on this. Four million, nine hundred ninety-nine thousand more than you had three years ago? Yeah, well, you guys you guys do big teams here. But I have the same agent in England that I had since I was 22, and she is my silent partner. So it's our career. We have built this together. And, so and you this, haven't tossed her over for these uh, oh my God, fancy no Americans? Way. And when we were meeting with American agents, the, I said to them all, you need to be impressing her, because that's who you you're going to be talking to mostly. So if she doesn't like you, it's not going to happen. Whatever she feels about it, I will feel about it because we're so completely in tune with each other. And also, she could have been the kind of person who made me take jobs 
that were not, she was always, always, always about good work with me. When I had that year out of work and I cried on the phone to her and she was the one who told me not to give up and she said, I promise you, I promise you, at some point we are going to sit together and we're going to look back on this from a much better place. And now we are and it's glorious, you know, to be sharing that with her. Do you have a dream role or dream playwright or dream director kind of thing going? I was never that kind of actress who thought I must play Hedda or I must... But I think Hamlet might be an interesting thing to mess about with. You mean him? Yeah. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. There's a few... There's a few, like... You'd be a good Hamlet. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, I would like to um, to see what that would be. Well, we'll see. you know, you're only doing this... Oh, and Cabaret. I want to do Cabaret. Very much so. I want to play Sally Bowles. You'd be good at that. Because I sing, and I have lost all my confidence with singing, so I would really like to be able to and she, sing. And she doesn't have to sing that perfectly. Yeah, but I would be amazing at singing. Would you? <laughs> so so carry us out on the theme from Cabaret. Oh, um, God, don't even. Some actresses would do that for you. They, they, yes. Not me. Um, <laughs> Denise Goff, uh, you're a pleasure. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Thank uh, you so much. A delight, and I cannot wait to see you in Angels in America, which... Yeah, hopefully it's not my rise and my fall. Can you imagine? Uh, she was great. No, yeah. she's terrible. No. We'll see. And you begin performances here February 23rd. Yeah. Uh, well, good luck. Thanks. Coming up. And blessed are the hands that keep giving, but never receive. When you leave the church... But your love for Christian pop music remains. See, I almost get the chills just hearing it to this day. It's just so weird to me because I don't believe, I don't pray to anybody. I don't like any of that stuff. That's next in Studio 360. Last summer, a listener named Sam Cook in Kansas City, no relation to the singer, lost his job. And um, I was angry, <laughs> and I was, you know, depressed. Like a lot of people, when they're feeling bummed out, Sam goes for certain comfort food music. And so I pull out this, uh, this album. The album is called Past the Edges. It's by a singer-songwriter of Christian music, Chris Rice. And Sam knows what a lot of people think of Christian rock. Christian music is very substandard to secular music. I hate Christian rock. A lot of it sucks. Why does Christian music suck? A good vegan meal is like a good Christian rock band. Even when it's kind of good, still really sucks. And you know what? They're right. Every time I pull this album out, or any Christian album out, my wife, she rolls, yeah, it is, high eye rolls and just, you know, looking at me like, what are you doing? But I think a lot of it is immature, and a lot of it is corny, a lot of it is, I mean, I find a lot of it cheesy too, and so I uh, pull out this um, album and I listen to it, you know, as that, that guilty pleasure. For the latest entry in our Guilty Pleasure series, Sam explains why he finds that song, Live By Faith, so soothing. I can't feel you moving in 
I grew up near Joplin, Missouri, and I grew up very religious, um, very much um, speak in tongues, lay on hands, put holy water on people, a literalist view of the Bible. For me, I went to church probably three or four times a week, and I was never told I couldn't listen to uh, what we'd say secular music, but there was definitely a divide of there's secular things and there's non-secular things, and that we shouldn't be involved in the secular things. You know, I wanted to be the best Christian I could, and so that just you know, soon progressed into me being totally tied up in this subculture of, you know, Christian rock and this Christian subculture of Christian movies. And because you were forgiven, you have the power to forgive. Christian books. If only he believed in Jesus, then he might want to marry me, she said, wiping her tears. My whole life was that for, you know, 10 years probably at least, those formative years of my life were that. And so I'd never heard the Beatles in my life until I was probably 27, 25, 26, you know? I had never heard any of that music. I didn't, I knew like some bands from the 90s. I didn't listen to them a lot because I thought, you know, I didn't want to go to hell or anything. So I didn't listen to, you know, I didn't listen to Nirvana. I didn't listen to the Smiths, who I, you know, today my, the Smiths are like one of my favorite bands. I was happy in the haze of a drunken hour But heaven knows I'm miserable now I was looking for a job and then I found a job And heaven knows I'm miserable now My whole life was built on this idea that the Bible is true, you know, 100%. And my wife... She wasn't a believer. Um, she played along, but she also opened my eyes up to a different way of thinking. We leave college and we move to uh, Kansas City so my wife could go to law school at KU. And when that happens, I just start reading books. And um, I read some books that really underline that, um, one, the Bible's not literally true, and here's why we know that. And when I officially say, okay, this isn't literally true. At that moment, I just, my mind just like opens almost instantly, you know, and then I end up walking away completely. It's tough because that's what your life is built around, right? My, not just my religious life was built around that, a chunk of my social life was, um, and definitely my politics. After that, everything, I was fair game on everything. The one thing I miss about faith at my church, I, you know, and the music I used to listen to as a kid, there was an emotion to it that, like, when you sing it, you, you are singing, you get chills by it. You'd have this, it's like deeper than you, right? And um, when I get down, which is pretty rare, I'm a very positive person, but when I get down or I get introspective, you know, I listen to uh, Live by Faith by this artist, Chris Rice. I can't feel you moving inside. I, I'm different than a lot of people because I do take lyrics, always have, very seriously. So I'm very much into what the artist is trying to say and very much singing along and trying to have the emotion that they want to get across. You know, the, the question he asks is, am I a fool? Am I just a fool? I mean, that in itself is just, you know, he's saying, am I a fool for not believing in this stuff? I don't need you, don't need you to prove to me I'll be a fool. This frame that he's going through now is really focused on like this giving of yourself and this doing something out of total faith. And we don't do that. I don't do that at all in my life. See, I almost get the chills just hearing it to this day. It's just so weird to me because 
I don't believe, I don't pray to anybody. I don't like any of that stuff, but it's this idea that there's something out there that you can reach for and that can help you in any problem you ever have. I don't have that. So I cry for your help while the world It still appeals to me when he sings it and I sing along in my car, which happens a lot. It totally appeals to that part of my emotion that I don't get in any other part of my life. So when I go back to this, it's almost like wanting just to feel it a little bit, right? It's almost, you know, wanting a taste of it, but not really being all in. It's just like you want to feel like you did in those really safe moments, maybe when I was a kid or whatever. My childhood was... Uh, uh, not a, not super positive. You know, my mom had me when she was really young. She was 17, dropped out of high school, um, I believe in the 10th grade. And um, I mean, we were poor, like really poor. And she had uh, really bad relationships. It was just bad man after bad man. So it's just a really bad home environment. And so the one respite I had was music. For the longest time, I resented my childhood and how I grew up with this faith and being tied down. It felt like I missed out on so much. Uh, but now I look back on it and I was like, I didn't miss out on anything. When you believe in something bigger than you and outside the scope of you and that is there and you're so important that he is watching you and guiding you and that you everything's going to be fine, right? I mean, it's this um, safety and the feeling that everything's going to be fine because God's there and he loves you, and, you know, that makes you happy. I think when someone listens to Chris Rice, those people are not hearing what I'm hearing. They're hearing some religious hymn almost, right, that's foreign to them. Um, it's just not foreign to me. It's a part of who I am. Because that's what it means to that's what it means to live in a world where our questions are haunted. Where the innocent die, we ask why, and still we await the reply. By the way, Sam found a new job at a company that teaches computer coding to kids, and he's doing fine. That piece was produced by Matt Frassica, whose terrific podcast, The Briny, is about all things maritime. If you've got some song or film or book or whatever that you love that's deeply unfashionable or unpopular, that's your guilty pleasure, and we'd like to hear about it. Explain in a voice memo or email and send that to us at guiltypleasures at studio360.org. President's Day is here again. It was established, I just found out, in 1879 to celebrate George Washington's birthday. Then later on, they added Abraham Lincoln to the holiday. But now it's meant to pay homage to all presidents, past and even present, which is sort of a quaint idea when you think about how much time television these days spends satirizing Donald Trump and impersonating Our jobs are fleeing this country. They're going to Mexico. They're going to China. You see a no-talent guy like Colbert. 
There's nothing funny about what he says. The guy was dying. By the way, they were going to take him off television. Pick three things everyone loves and say you hate them. Watch. Puppies, stupid. Rainbows, total losers. But there was a time when impersonating a president wasn't really done. Until when John F. Kennedy was president, a funny guy named Vaughn Meter played him on a LP album called The First Family. I remember it. I was in second grade. I don't think a comedy album has ever been such a big deal in America, so familiar to so many people. To explain how a team of unknown comedy writers created this one-of-a-kind, award-winning blockbuster, we got the story from a comedy historian. I'm Ronald L. Smith. I'm the author of Comedy on Record, as well as Who's Who in Comedy. And from the man who co-wrote and produced that album. I'm Bob Booker. I'm a TV producer, album producer, writer, director, editor. Spent my life in the entertainment world. At that time, no one actually had done what people believed was this outrageous idea of making fun of the president and his family. We took this attitude. We thought that Jack Kennedy was a movie star president. He had this tremendous sense of humor. He was young. He had the beautiful wife, two children. We did a demo of the album to sell it, you know, recorded about 15 minutes of it, and we shopped it around New York, and uh, we were thrown out of 12 of the major record companies. One actually threatened us to get out, and the big labels like Columbia and Capital and RCA, they were just too involved with the government to ever insult the President of the United States, and they thought this would be insulting. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking to you from a typical American home in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. Since January of 1960, this family of smiling and happy people have undergone a change. You might say they've been engaged in a new and different type of experiment. Sir, as head of this average family, what was this new experience undergone by you and the members of your household? Well, after uh, two years of brushing with the Crest toothpaste, our group... Our group had uh, 21% fewer cavities with Crest. Actually, what we were looking to do, I guess, was what would be an old-fashioned radio show. We had a cast of people, and we did sketches. And strangely enough, Vaughn Meter looked a little bit like Jack Kennedy. Uh, Naomi Brassard, who played Jackie, was, I mean, she really looks like her. And she did the best impression of Jackie Kennedy ever. Now, if you'd care to follow me down this hall to the next room, as we go, I should like to point out the various paintings on the wall. Yes, I wish you would point them out. Well, there's this one. And this one. (laughs) And that great big one over there. The First Family was the fastest rising album ever. Fastest rising album of all time. A million copies sold within one month. It was this incredible phenomenon of uh, a small record label nobody knew, a comedian that nobody had ever heard of, a comedy writing team nobody had ever heard of. It didn't succeed that much as a political satire album. It succeeded as just a funny album of 
uh, little sketches. Now down onto the floor for this week's press conference. Yes, well, there is no opening statement. I think I will just take the uh, first question. Sir, we understand that on-the-spot nuclear inspection might not be necessary. Do you have a new way that we can tell what the Russians are doing without actual on-the-spot inspection in the Soviet Union? Yes, we are asking everyone to uh, be very, very quiet. (laughs) One thing that is part of this uh, perfect storm about the first family is that it hit on so many levels, and one of them was simply the Boston accent. Nobody had heard a Boston accent uh, before. All of a sudden, you have this guy with this voice and this cadence, and it was considered really hilarious going back to the old school of park your carcass and uh, ethnic uh, Jewish uh, and, and Irish voices. A lot of the humor on the first family was just purely in the cadence of uh, John F. Kennedy's voice. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government... As promised. And while they were making this record, the Cuban Missile Crisis arose. Of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The Cuban Crisis was in October of 1962, the exact night we were recording the album. Thank God the audience waiting to hear this comedy album recorded uh, hadn't heard it. But 30 minutes later, we recorded the album. So here is Kennedy at 7 o'clock saying we're about to go to war, and here we are at 7.30 doing jokes about the first family. Family, family, family. Jack, there's just too much family. Can't we ever get away alone? Tomorrow. I I promise tomorrow we'll go away together uh, tomorrow. No more family for a while now, I promise. Now uh, turn off the light. Good night, Jackie. Good night, Jack. Night, Bobby. Night, Ethel. First Family reinvented the idea of sketch comedy, audio sketch comedy. You know, I think uh, think we're all bozos on this bus. Firesign Theater, Credibility Gap, and Congress of Wonders, Cheech and Chong even. They all ran with it. And uh, there were albums that you just purely listened to. There was sound effects going on. There were interesting voices going on. That all came from the first family. The following is a public service announcement. Election day is near. Go to the polls and vote. Vote for the Kennedy of your choice, but vote. (laughs) It's kind of sad in a way that the album had a sequel to it, which did not get a lot of airplay. There was First Family Volume 2, And unfortunately, not too long after that, the assassination of President Kennedy happened and the second album disappeared. My secretary called and said, Kennedy's been shot. I said, I want the uh, album. Well, there were two albums at that time. We'd done a follow-up. But I said, take them both off the market right now and I want them chopped up. I do not want to sit and try to cash in on this tragedy. It became a collector's album because there were so few copies of it that anybody could find. I had a conversation with Caroline Kennedy about a year ago, and she was very anxious to have the masters of these albums in the Kennedy Library in Boston. That's the greatest compliment that we could ever receive for this album. Sir? Yes? When will we send a man to the moon? Whenever uh, Senator Goldwater wants to go. (laughs) 
That was Ron Smith and Bob Booker talking about the comedy album The First Family. That LP, as we used to call records, was selected to be preserved in the National Recording Registry. Our story was produced by Ben Manila for BMP Audio. Nine years ago, when Melissa Spitz was a junior at the University of Missouri, her photography professor gave her class an assignment. Document something private. Melissa didn't have to look very far. She turned her camera on her mentally ill alcoholic mother, who at the time she kind of hated. We'd fight, and she'd say, if you leave the house, I'm going to kill myself. Those photos of Melissa's mother, Deborah Adams, became an ongoing series called you have nothing to worry about. And for the last four years, Melissa has posted the photos on a dedicated Instagram account. That account now has 50,000 followers and prompted Time Magazine in 2017 to name her Instagram Photographer of the Year. Her first real-world solo exhibition just opened at the Savannah College of Art and Design in Georgia, Melissa, congratulations, and welcome to Studio 360. Thank you for having me. So you will be walking us through some of your images of your mother, of the many thousands that exist later on, and listeners can see the ones we'll be talking about at our website, which is pri.org slash Studio 360. But before we talk about the pictures, I want to talk about your mother and you and and how this all came to be. So your mother has been ill for a very long time, most of your life, right? Yeah, pretty you, much my entire life. You have memories of, of like, oh, she was a normal mom? Mm, no, not really. It was yeah. always kind of crazy. There was, If it was not super negative, it was always super manic and super exciting. And she was, you know, the crazy mom, the mom that would let us do whatever we wanted, you know, buy me and my friend's cigarettes so I wouldn't get in trouble, things like that. So she was just eccentric and wild and unusual before she was diagnosed, treated, and exactly. so forth. Yeah. So when did it get so terrible that she had to be treated? Well, she was institutionalized with the state of Washington when I was six, seven. I was alone with her. And so that was kind of this turning point, and we've got to get mom home. So my dad uprooted the whole family from Seattle, Washington, moved us back to St. Louis, and it just kind of downward spiraled from there. There'd be yelling matches, there'd be pills everywhere, there'd be an influx of alcohol, and then the alcohol would go away. And and were the drugs all over uh, uh, illegal drugs or medicines she was? Always you know, prescription pills. And drinking. Uh, she was alcoholic. Uh-huh. She's an alcoholic. Yes. But all those things, people could be listening and go, well, yeah, I mean, that happened in my household or mm-hmm. somebody I know without there being a, 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 a named mental illness involved. Yeah. I mean, did she lose touch with reality? At yes, times, totally. Or? There were instances, you know, where she didn't know what was real. She would tell me there were people in our house coming to kill us. She would tell me that, you know— they're breaking in, they're breaking in, they're coming to get me, they're coming to get me. And then we were just kind of like, no, there's nobody coming. You didn't in. believe that as a little kid? As a might. little kid, I did. Yeah. When I was when the instance happened in Seattle and she was institutionalized, um, I was, you know, I believed my mom. We were hiding in a bathtub. She was telling me there were people coming to kill us. And I think I grew up my whole life being paranoid a little bit. So as any parent or anybody who's been a child knows relationships between mothers and daughters, parents and children can be rough, uh, especially in adolescence. You have this exceptionally difficult mother. How was your adolescence? It was rough. She would threaten to kill herself a lot. So I was stuck in this very 
codependent trap of do I stay in the chaos and deal and get abused and either verbally or physically or do I leave and have this guilt and pressure of if this woman actually does it this time, that was the last thing she said to me. And not even this woman, my mother, right, you know, right. on top of all of it. So. And your parents got divorced when you, when you were a teenager. Yes. My dad always said, you know, I wanted to wait until you were out of the house. I wanted to wait till you were out of the house. And when I was 16, there was a big instance where she took a bunch of pills, paramedics were there, and I just looked at my dad and I was like, I would rather you guys be divorced than have this happen every single night. Because it was just like a weekly event. Like mom would get drunk and crash into the gas station. Mom would get drunk or overdose on pills and call 911. It was just like constant. It pulled the whole family apart. And shortly after that, you go off to the University of Missouri and, and end up taking this photography course. But your interest in photography had predated that, right? Yes. In high school, I would redevelop my grandpa's negatives. Like, it was always family photography, whether it was pictures at home or pictures of my grandpa, pictures of my grandma and her family. She was a Holocaust survivor. So I had this really long history with photos and things. You made new prints out of his old Mm -hmm. negatives? That's interesting. That's what I did in high school. Like, that was, like, me revisiting. Yeah. So it was a perfect trajectory for me to start photographing at home, but it didn't happen until... My junior year, my freshman and sophomore year, I was partying and pretty lost. Um, I wasn't doing well in school. I flunked out. I was put on, like, a probation list. Um, And I remember I came back to intermediate photography, and I took pictures of my friends, like, partying and dancing. And my teacher was like, don't ever bring this into my classroom again. And I was like, okay. Like, I got shut down, and it was embarrassing. And then we had this next assignment, private. And I was like, okay, I'm going to, like, really hit this one out of the park. And I'm going to take my camera home. And I've been wanting to do this for forever because it was like the dust had finally settled at that point. Were were, were there ethical issues you thought about? Like, should I I do this? Definitely. There were times where, you know, she'd be so drunk. And then I'd be like, okay, those pictures maybe aren't ethically sound from her perspective. But then on my end, you know, it is my perspective and it was my life and it right. was my home. It's just as much as it was hers. So that was always kind of like I I got to just keep shooting what's in front of me. And she's she, from the beginning, was kind of down with it? Yeah, she loves the attention. She's always just been like, take a picture of me here, take a picture of me there. She's always loved. She was very, 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 I mean, she still is very beautiful, but she She was gorgeous growing up, like platinum blonde, just beautiful woman. And so I think that fleeting beauty is why she wants this attention and has always just enjoyed being the center of attention. Um, And and she's not institutionalized. She she works at at, Home Depot. She works at Home Depot. She goes to church, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, has friends, mm-hmm. uh, not at this point dangerous to herself or others? That's debatable, I feel like. I do feel like she's dangerous to herself a lot, and I feel like behind the wheel, it's not a safe situation. It's kind of what you're doing in a certain sense, uh, and I don't mean to dismiss it with this phrase, but it's like a it's like a reality show, Yeah. right? Well, and that's one thing that really started it, is I remember watching Intervention and Hoarders and these television shows, And my brother and I would watch it, and the family members of these individuals would come out, and we'd be like, hey, look, they're normal. Like, there's normal people related to people like this. That's just like us. And then when the private project came, I just remember being like, 
okay, if Intervention is this, like, hit show, this looks like a cakewalk compared to what's going on upstairs in my house right now. And, and you, you started it at a point where, like, you, you kind of wanted nothing to do with your mother. And, and over the course of the nine years, maybe it's because you're older, maybe it's because you did this, whatever, you have a less horrible relationship with Yes. Her. Yeah, it's changed our relationship huh. totally. Initially, I mean, it started from a place of animosity. Over time, I've started to be really a lot more empathetic towards her. And I see, you know, a lot of my friends becoming mothers. And I see that it's not easy for anybody, let alone somebody with mental health issues. Right. Yeah. Uh, We're going to look at uh, one of the pictures you took for the first assignment uh, when this all began nine years ago. It's called First Shoot with Mom 2009. Um, So this is my mom sitting in a white bathrobe in our old living room with a screened-in door behind her, that, or sliding door behind her that lets all this beautiful natural light come in. Um, and I came home from school, and my mom was drinking in her white bathrobe at, like, 3 o'clock in the afternoon and putting on her red lipstick in this very gray gardens, like, scene. And I was just like, what is going on? Like, this is, it's like a Thursday. And so I just was like, sit on the couch. I want to make your portrait. And... She sat down, and that was the first frame I shot. Um, I mean, you know, it's a nice picture of a mom, yeah. right? I mean, kind of sexy. Uh, she looks good. The lighting's nice. I yeah. mean, she must have seen this and go, yeah, I look pretty good. She has that hanging in her house at 40 by 60. Like she has a, Really? She has that framed. In, uh, five feet by three feet. Yeah, like yeah. massive. Um, uh, <laughs> and she's how old at this point? 50-something? Uh, yeah, uh, 57, 58. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, she's kind of glamorous. Yeah, uh, she does. She and, straddles and, and, and that line. And there's makeup on, right? Mm-hmm. She always, I've always felt that she straddles the line between tragic and glamorous. Did you direct it, or did she just do what she, she did? She just does what she does. I, I've always tried to be like a fly on the wall with her because I want her to just do what she— the, It becomes a stage. Like, my camera becomes a stage that she can perform and act on and be right. how she wants to be. So for that first assignment, how many pictures did you take? I think I turned in 12, and this was the only one that had her in it, and the rest were all, you know, pictures of pills or spill. There was—I remember a lot of red wine spills on, like, tile that had dried up, a lot of garbage, the inside of a refrigerator, which was, you know, full of foil and all this weird leftovers— And I remember my professor, Joe Johnson, being like, what is this? And I was like, that's my mom. So he, your photography professor, responded to this and said, oh, you really, you're doing something good here? Just immediately. He was like, obviously, as any professor would be, keep doing this, keep doing this. And then it just, it didn't stop from that point on. There are uh, lots of pictures that you've done where your mother doesn't look glamorous. Um, She's a mess a lot, uh, visually, physically. Uh, Like this next photo, uh, of which is a close-up. You call it, I fell down and broke my jaw. It's from 2012. So what are we seeing? Um, So this is my mom with a cut over her eyebrow and a huge bruise on her chin. But then she's still totally made up with, like, perfect eyeliner to her uh, standards and her hair curled and jewelry on, which is always strange. But I just, I came out of my room in the morning. She walked down the stairs looking like that. And I I was like, oh my God, mom, what happened to your face? And she just looked at me and she just said, oh, I fell down and I broke my jaw. And it's that type of exaggeration. Like if your jaw was broken, you, there's no way you'd be talking. There's no, right. it's, so she, she may have fallen down. She certainly didn't break her jaw. Yeah, down. of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. She just always, you know. But it's dramatized. Of always, yeah. always. 
Uh, here's another picture, which listeners uh, can see on your website, um, melissaspitz.com. Uh, this one's called Mom's Appendectomy 2013. Um, so this is my mom in the hospital after she had um, an emergency appendectomy. And she's holding up her hospital gown and exposing herself and her wound from her appendectomy to me. And she is wearing no underwear. No underwear, no. Um, my mom's appendix ruptured, and she went four days without knowing. She was abusing so much drugs and alcohol at that time that she just didn't even know her appendix ruptured. I immediately just started flying back to St. Louis to pick up the pieces of this. Um And I walked into her hospital room, and I had my camera around my neck. And she got out of bed, and she said, do you want to see my scar? And she just lifted up her hospital gown, and I said, can I take your photo like this? And she said, of course. And I took this, and then I looked at my camera, and I was like, I cannot believe I just made that picture. Um, But there's something about her eyes. I mean, she's, she's sober. I mean, was that one where you go like, ooh, yeah, she's sober. She wasn't drunk, but really, Am I, is, is this is this too far? Did you have that thought? No, never. Because for me, I mean, that's like where that's where I came from. Like this is who, in the most honest way, right. who I came from. Uh, next picture we're looking at is called Mom's Vacation, two thousand thirteen. Describe this. Um, so this is my mom smoking in bed, and how it appears is it's. You can't tell that it's my mom. She's wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Looks like a guy. Yeah, it, it, she's wearing, it was actually one of my dad's shirts. Um, it's a Hawaiian pool shirt. And then it almost looks like a treasure map across her with these burnt holes, but it's actually her comforter folded over. Um, with these, like, dozens of cigarette burn holes. Yeah. And, and what's funny about this is this was actually, like, a good day. Like, my mom and I had had a good day. It was the end of the day. I was leaving to go over to a friend's house, and I was like, oh, I'm going to go up and say goodnight to my mom. And I went upstairs, and she was just sitting there smoking with the comforter folded over like that. And I was like, Mom, you're going to light yourself on fire. And she was like, this is what I like to do, Melissa. She's like, I like to have my wine in my bed, and I like to smoke. And I left, and I was just like, well, that's Mom's vacation. Like, there she is. She's And it had this whole island vibe to me right. always this like treasury you know, I, you know, I get that do you prefer this kind of just naturalistic documentation image to the more posed yeah ones yeah definitely because i feel like she has a lot of power when she's posing and acting and changing her outfits and putting up signs on the walls like that's her using me and i never anticipated that i always just wanted to kind of float around and capture what was happening because I didn't think it needed to be embellished at all. Like, and that's this image exactly. Like, there's nothing that you could, you couldn't, you can't make that up. Like, you can't recreate that. It's just the facts. It's what is happening. So in 2014, you created an Instagram account which you also call You Have Nothing to Worry About, consisting of, of these pictures of your mother, mostly old ones, new ones. And what's so interesting to me is that my experience of Instagram, and maybe it's just about who I follow, but it's so much of it is about, oh, look at my perfect and beautiful life. Exactly. <laughs> Whereas this, yours, it being this account of your disturbed mother is kind of the opposite. Well, and social media allows us so much to create and manipulate how we're perceived. And so it is, in a way, kind of throwing 
the middle finger to that type of life because it's not it's it's so social media is so fake and that's why I've always just been like I'm going to be brutally honest and a lot of times I type posts and I'm like Ooh, I just shared way too much. No one's going to respond to that. And then it will blow up. And I'm like, okay, that's, then it was good. Um, you were not inclined to stop doing this? No, I'm not at all. Yeah. I want to keep doing it. And I, it makes her feel like she has a purpose. She says that a lot. Huh. She'll say, it makes me feel like I am helping other people. And she'll say, what are other moms writing you? Because a lot of moms will DM me and send me messages on Instagram and all. I mean, and what they send me is a little overwhelming at times. They'll send me things like, I was just diagnosed with X, Y, and Z, and I don't want to be a bad mom. What type of advice do you have for me? And I'm like, okay, well, I'm 29, and I have no idea what to tell you. But um, but when I tell my mom that, she's like, oh, wow. So it really is helping other women like think about their actions as parents. And I said, yeah, mom, like it's, it is helping other people. Melissa Spitz, uh, I was... Uh, struck by your work and this project when I learned about it, and I am very, very pleased we had a chance to talk. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. You can find Melissa's work on Instagram at nothing to worry about with underscores between each of those words, and at her website, melissaspitz.com. Her solo show is up through April at the Museum of the Savannah College of Art and Design. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. R.I. Public Radio International. He's 19 feet tall, marble, and kind of homely. Lincoln is not the most classically beautiful face. You know, he was held in such esteem, but Lincoln is such a screwy-looking guy. Join me and Sarah Vowell to figure out how the Lincoln Memorial became an American icon. Next time in Studio 360 from PRI.